We'll also have it projected up behind us. We have Bibles in your seats. If you don't have a Bible, please take that home as our gift to you and read it and get to know about this Jesus we celebrate today. So would you pray with me as we go to God's Word? I pray, Lord, as we look to your Scriptures, Lord, that you would just wreck us afresh in the name of Jesus today. Or that we would see you and be in awe of what an awesome God we have and we serve. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so as we look at verse 1 in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is addressing one of the churches that he planted, and he's trying to get a feel for how they're doing in loving one another. So look with me at chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, being of the same mind, and being in full accord and being in one mind. Like I said, Paul planted this church not too long ago. If you want to read the story of it, it's back in Acts chapter 16. And anybody who plants a church or has a pastor's heart, or if you've ever just spent time pouring into somebody, you want to know that those people get it. That's something that matters to you significantly. I would bleed for any of my people that God has entrusted me to be a shepherd over. And I think that anybody with a shepherd's heart who's not just a hired hand should be able to say the same thing, that they would bleed for their people to get it. And Paul gives a little diagnostic to make sure that they get it because he cares about them so much. And he picks some interesting things to provoke their understanding of the Gospel. And he starts off with, if you really get it, if there's been any genuine encouragement in Christ, and we're not just playing church here, we're not just playing games, we're not just pretending, if I'm shepherding you well how to love one another, and taught you well about the love of Christ, both for you and expressing the love of Christ to one another, and if there's been genuine comfort to go along with that genuine encouragement, if there is any participation in the Spirit, and when I hear that term participation in the Spirit, it means one of two things, maybe both. It either means... The gifts, and Paul's saying, if the gifts of the Spirit are truly being manifested in love amongst you, like we're instructed in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in a real way where it's really the Spirit, or he could be speaking of the fruit of the Spirit, and if he's saying, if love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are really being manifested because it's the Spirit who is doing the work, if those things are really being manifested in this church, if there has really been any affection, and affection also could be taken a few different ways. Paul might be saying, hey, if there's any affection for Paul, as the one who shared the Gospel with him. He did that to the Corinthians. He did that to Philemon in the book of Philemon, saying, hey, if you remember me with any affection as the man who first shared the Gospel with you. Or affection could mean for one another. Like he encourages the Galatians over and over. Shoulder one another's burdens in love and have a deep Gospel-rooted affection for one another. 
Or it can mean if there's any affection for Christ. If he's saying if you really claim that you get Christ and if you have affection for Him. Or it can mean if you understand the affection for Christ that He has for you, like He took that whole beautiful first chapter of Ephesians chapter 1 and just spills out this awesome plan of sovereign love of how much Christ is in love with sinners like us and all that He did to call himself us back to Himself. And then he moves on to if there's any sympathy. And it's almost like asking, do you guys really even care about one another? Like in a costly way, are you willing to care for one another? I hope what you see that uh, you're able to see what he's doing here. He's breaking down the way that Christ loves his church and he's making sure that they are patterning the way that they love one another after the way that they have been loved by Jesus Christ. So he's saying if you're claiming that all of these things are tangible, and if you're claiming that these are really realities, then I love what he says, then complete my joy, brethren. I love this phrase, complete my joy. He's saying show that you really get it. And I can still attest As a pastor, there are very few things that rock your world as much when you're explaining somebody the love of Jesus. I can still look at some of you and remember when that moment became real to you and watched as you bowed your knee to the Gospel. And it still just affects you so much. But it completes your joy. When you look at somebody and you see that light bulb go off and you're like, they had that aha moment. Not because of them, because flesh and blood didn't reveal it to them, but the Holy Spirit worked in their hearts so that they could truly see who Jesus is. There's very few things like seeing somebody come to that understanding of the truth. So you can see why he would use this phrase, complete my joy, because that's what it does. When you see somebody go from loving themselves to being full-on, just recklessly abandoned for the love of Jesus, it brings you to a place of completed joy and completed awe. And then He encourages them, if you get it, then show that you get it by the way that you want another, each other in Christ. Look at verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of same mind, having one having the same love and being of one accord and of one mind. So, Christ is not fragmented, guys. The Trinity is not fragmented. The Trinity has existed in perfect unity since before the creation of the world. The love put on display in the Gospel is not a love that shows fragmentation in any way. So we, as Christ's body, are not to be fragmented. So with confidence, He tells them to have the same love for one another and to be one accord with one another and to strive together with one another with one mind. Imagine the witness that the church would have in this country if we really, really got that. If we said, you know what? We are going to take the love that we have been loved with in the Gospel of Jesus Christ and we are going to strive together as one body with one mind just fixated on that love of the Gospel and be vessels of that 
to our communities. Well, he's asking them to imagine that. And he wants to flesh it out with them. And in the next verses, you can begin to see the foreshadows of the cross when he instructs them in humility. Consider others as greater than yourselves. Can you think of another time or another holiday where this truth of in humility consider others greater than yourselves is put on display more than Resurrection Sunday. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul tells them the wrong motivation at first. He says, Do nothing out of selfish motivation. You know what that means? It's not about you! Any of you. It's not about one of you that walked through the door. It's not about any of us. It's not about Redeemer Fellowship. It's not about Trinity Fellowship. It's not about Remedy Church. It's about Jesus. And it's the only one that it's supposed to be about. It's a Jesus thing. And then he says, do nothing out of conceit. A good way to measure if your heart is doing things out of conceit are two simple statements that were uttered by John the Baptist in John chapter 3. One is when he says, I am not the Messiah. And if you're regularly able to say, I'm not the Messiah, I don't need you to look at me in a messianic sort of way, I don't have a messianic Superman cape at home that I put on when I want you to treat me messianically, tell yourselves, like John did, I am not the Messiah. And then say the other beautiful words that he said, Jesus needs to be the one that increases, and I need to be the one that decreases. That's the heart of somebody who's not doing anything out of conceit. And then he tells them something that if we keep in mind, it will take the effort of bringing these two bodies, and it will ensure that it's something that works in the Spirit in the rest of verse 3. He says, count others more significant than yourselves. And then he gives them the right motivation. He shares something that hits at the heart of every one of us who has ever put on this skin suit that we call flesh, aside from the one that we celebrate today. He says, look, don't look out for your own interests. Who here has looked out for their own interests or struggles with looking at your own interests? If you're handing up, you're a liar. Um, He's saying if you know Christ, then this ain't about your own interests. Because it's not about you. This ain't your story. This is His story. But not only avoid looking out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. And consider those others as more important than yourselves. What Paul is really trying to say to them is if you get the Gospel, if you understand this, then your interests, your ambitions, your comfort, or anything that begins with I, me, and my, the trinity of stupidity, begins to get thrown out the window. And man, we've got to be so careful of those I, me, and my sentences in a season such as this. If you have a tough time with your motivations and with making interests, your interests greater um, than Christ's interests and His kingdom, I heard a great quote about humility. This is from, I believe, Tim Keller. He said, whenever you say things like I'm having a hard time humbling myself, 
It just means that you gave yourself permission to be prideful to begin with. I'm going to repeat that. Whenever you say things like, I'm going to have a hard time humbling myself, it means that you gave yourself permission to be prideful to begin with. If we never give ourselves permission to be prideful, we would never have a hard time trying to be humble. And then we see it, or we, more accurately, we see Him, our Redeemer, the perfect picture of the humility that is being spoken of. Look with me in verses 5-8. through He says, Have this in your mind amongst yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as something to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in the human form. He humbled Himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has bestowed on him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Look, we're never going to have perfect humility. But look, if you claim the name of Christ, you do have new life. So we should have a renewed sense of humility that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. As another one of my favorite authors has stated, there's only one person who's ever lived who should have had to humble himself. That's pretty deep when you think about it, isn't it? There's only one person who's ever lived that should have had to humble himself. And just in case you're wondering if it's you, it's not. Um, and, And then he goes on to describe humility that Christ put on display on the day that we celebrate Today, and I'm going to rapid fire through these seven things we see about Jesus from the way that Paul describes his sacrifice in Philippians 2. First, he was not concerned about his position. Jesus was never wrapped up in fair world. If anybody had the right to utter the words, it's not fair, it was Jesus, but he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped even though He was God Himself. But He had a mission to come and reclaim that which was lost. And to do so, He didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. And then He said He emptied Himself. What did He empty Himself of? That's something that theologians have been debating for years. It's called the kenosis passage. The emptying of Christ. What was it that He emptied Himself of? In the very least, He emptied Himself of the glory that was due to Him. Just think about that. Think about the passage that Eric read when they saw the resurrected Christ. It said that when I saw Him, He was so brilliant, I fell at His feet as a dead man. That is how brilliant the glory of Jesus was. He emptied Himself of that so that He could walk amongst us. Also, in the very least, He emptied Himself of His very life so that He could pour it out for redemption on our behalf. And that's what we celebrate today. Then He goes on to talk about how He became a slave to His very own created beings. Wrap your minds around that. He created us And then He willfully came to be the slaves to the people who He created who also set out to destroy Him. What kind of love is this? 
And then it goes on to say that He allowed Himself to be born in very humble means. That's the Christmas message. right? A humility that would be brought to completion during the sufferings in the garden, the torture on the cross, His separation from the Father, and ultimately His death on our behalf. He became fully human, it says here. You know why Christ became fully human? You know why He had to humble Himself to put on flesh? Because He could not have secured our redemption in any other way. When the Bible talks about Christ becoming a human, there's really only one main... There are some sub-theological reasons, but there's one main reason. He knew that it would take a perfect human to come and repay the sin of Adam and that he had to come and be the greater second Adam who would pay that debt on the cross that we couldn't pay. And then he states the obvious. It says that Christ humbled Himself to the Father's will. Think of Christ in the garden. Have you taken time this week to consider as He sat there in the garden and He wept blood as He knelt before the Father humbling Himself so that you could be His prize and so that you could be His ultimate reward so that He could win back a fallen creation. And the last one, was that He was willing to humble Himself even to the point of death on a cross. And that's when you just step back and you say, wow, Lord. You really loved a wretch like me like that, Lord. You did it all. Lord, the only thing that I brought to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. You did everything else. And then Paul ends this passage on Christ humbling Himself by telling us that there will be a day where every person humbles themselves as every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if you are here today and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, when it says every, it means every. Every knee is going to bow and confess. And I remember being in church services. I used to go to church on Christmas and Easter. And that's why I don't make fun when I hear people that just come on these two special days a year because that Gospel seed was planted in me during those times that I began to come and I began to understand, wow, you're really after me. And you are not going to stop pursuing. You're going to win. You're bigger than me. Every knee will bow and tongue will confess that He is Lord. For those of us that know Christ, I can't wait for that day. Guys, as excited as I am for this day, look around again. I mean, this is exciting. Christ is risen. As excited as I am to be able to say that a hundred more times today, it pales in comparison to how excited I am and that day that I'm going to get to bend my knee before Him and say, You are my Lord! To the glory of God the Father. I can't wait for that day. This is nothing compared to that.
And as we look at the baptism that we're going to be having in a second, we're going to be sharing a visual picture of two people bending their knee and proclaiming that they want to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we invite you to come and bend your knee as well. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited about it. Listen, guys, we get to stand in awe of literally everything in this passage. We get to genuinely encourage one another to love each other well. We get to, in humility, consider each other as greater than ourselves. We get to stand in awe as we look at one of the clearest descriptions in the Bible of how Christ sacrificed on our behalf. We get to learn humility, love, grace, and sacrifice from the Master Himself. And then we get two new converts come and bow their knee and confess with their mouths that our risen Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How's that for a Resurrection Sunday? Amen? So...